One, we are recording now. Well, this is fun. I'm pretty excited uh, to be doing this finally. This has been, this project has been uh, more than a year in the making at this point. And we kind of just, we'd, we'd come together for a short period of time um, and kind of discuss doing it, maybe meet once on Teams or something. And then we'd just kind of drop it just because we all had busy schedules and all four of us are in different states. Three of these guys are on the Eastern time zone. I work on the Western time zone. Um, so it makes it somewhat challenging to schedule. But at this point, I think three of four of us are seniors in high school. So we're enjoying a little bit more free time than we normally would have here. And uh, Jason is still kind of, I guess, slaving away with college work. So uh, I feel for you there, but I'm glad that you can at least find some time there. But um, so, yeah, this is our first, I think, our first episode on the uh, the podcast that is yet to be named for Turtles. We got to figure that one out. Maybe that's something that we can do. But today we've got on uh, Simone. I, I don't I, I guess you, the last name. I don't want to butcher that. I should have asked. But if you is it Roe or? Yeah, um, it's I think it's okay. it's pretty hard to pronounce for American people, but it's it's a French name. So. No, yeah, I would not have gotten that. So thanks no. for helping me there. Um, but uh, yeah, Simone, I think we've all. Um, if you're in the turtle world, you definitely know about his his Instagram page. It's one of the coolest out there, I think. And um, we all have followed him for a while, and probably all have our individual kind of. Uh, interactions and talking to him about a lot of things. Um, so we're excited. We're excited to talk turtles. Um, I guess we can just kind of get things started off. The first question we're all sort of curious about in general, and this is the first thing that we get asked all the time, uh, but why turtles? You know, what, what is it? What was your first experience with them? And, and, and what, what, what do you find interesting? And, and what got you started with that? So I think my answer would be not very different from many other people who you could ask the question because while I was seven years old, my parents just bought a radius slider and uh, we had this turtle at home. Also, I was a very curious kid. So I was, I've always been interested in nature, in wildlife, animals, etc., And I was always uh, exploring in nature. I was lucky enough to grow up uh, in a big house with a big garden. And when my parents bought that small radius slider, just like this, it was in 2004, actually. I remember the price. At that time, they were like about 27 euros, which is nothing. And people who just bought hundreds and thousands of them, which were exported from Florida at that time. So I got these little sliders and then uh, my interest for turtle grew up uh, gradually. And then I got books and then I went on the internet. There were the first turtle forum at that time. And uh, that's how I learned everything by myself on turtle, reading books, etc. And then you met people um, who are becoming your friends. And that's how a patient uh, begins, I guess. That's, that's awesome. Yep. That was that you were on sort of the turtle, the, the old, uh, like Google turtle forum that they used to do. Is that the one? I mean, in France, there was two big forum and you know, it's a lot of people 
who just, uh, they have a turtle, they have question on it, they don't know how to keep it, they don't know what kind it is. So they just got a picture of it on the forum and then you answer. And there are also other people who are more interested in turtle, who maybe have some nice pieces and, uh, and they were just uh, showing off pictures, discussing about biology, breeding, field, field research or whatever. So I grew up spending a lot of time on this forum, actually, yes. And now I have to say that with the rise of social media, all these forums, they are basically dead now. But if you want some interesting information on turtle and tortoises, you can go back to these old pages and sometimes you find very interesting stuff, I think. Yeah, that's definitely true. We've been, yeah. uh, Jack and I did some stuff on, on the, the one that we have that's pretty common here. And it's, it's actually pretty interesting too, how there's people kind of just lurking on there that, that are almost like looking for questions. Cause they're not a, a lot of the, the, you know, the, the, um, the people that have been doing this for a while, that that's sort of their method of communication because they started on that the forum they don't do instagram facebook um yeah. but it, yeah I, I mean i was still surprised maybe 2019 we posted something on there and we still got some pretty high quality answers in terms of people's but you wouldn't necessarily expect um but yeah no they've definitely collapsed quite a bit uh and, and that community is sort of falling apart. But it's kind of merged into Instagram now. I don't know. How do you feel? I, I feel like the forum definitely had its pluses in terms of kind of moderating the nonsense, you know? Facebook, I'm not so sure about that, but... Yeah. What I like about the forum is that you could have, like, real discussion. And I feel like... I mean, Instagram is just a way of sharing pictures and videos, right? It's not a way to discuss things the comments and and um and everything on the app is not made for people to discuss actually uh facebook more i think and i believe that there are many total group on facebook that are interesting to be in uh because also it's easier to discuss than on instagram from my point of view but instagram is great because you can just share pictures with lots of people and and meet new people also from everywhere so, yeah. yeah, it's uh, definitely a powerful tool in terms of communication. I, I sort of, that was one of the things too. I, I always liked writing and, and communicating. And so when I picked it up, I guess like eight years ago now at this point, uh, I was just interested in writing about things. And obviously as like a sixth grader, it's sort of evolved uh, now into something I hope that's better than it was in the past. Uh, but uh, there's always, it's fun to just, it's, you know, it's kind of an experimental template. I, I like to use it to figure out what people want to hear. And I think no one really reads it. No one, no one reads many of the captions, but it, maybe they make it through the first few sentences. I read or, them. I okay, read them. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, oh, they're, oh, okay. Well, I have. They okay. just scroll, scroll and scroll and they don't read. <laughs> okay. Don't well, read. I, uh. I'm flattered, but I hope you, I hope they're uh, a good use of everyone's time. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Talking about Instagram though. Um, I would say yours is definitely one of my favorite, uh, certainly European turtle wise. It's, it's one of the only ones I can think about. Um, you've had some crazy experiences with, with turtles in France. 
Uh, what what is kind of can you explain some of the work that you've done in France with uh, some? I, I mean, you're kind of limited there. It's kind of like California, right? You don't have too many species, but the ones you have are pretty cool. So mm-hmm. could you expand on that a little? So uh, I grew up in the northeast of France, so there is no wild turtles in nature, unfortunately. And uh, when uh, I was 18 years old, I volunteered in the Village des Tortues, which is basically a research uh, and rescue center dedicated to the Western Herman tortoises and also the European pond turtle. So I volunteered there. And uh, I had the opportunity to go in the field and look at wild turtle kind of for the first time. And then, uh, yes, yeah, since that time, I, I was able to, to meet new people, make friends, and then uh, go in the field uh, as soon as I can. So that was really the first experience I had. And the most funny about it is that I visited this place when I was seven years old first. And also when I was 13 years old and I got back there to volunteer uh, when I was 18 because before I didn't really have the time. And then uh, after that time, I got also involved. Um, we have in uh, something that could be, uh, it's uh, an organization that gather all the turtle breeder and we have a small magazine. So I'm also involved a lot. Uh, with that, we write articles, we have uh, a redaction committee, etc. And then uh, there is also a rescue center dedicated to turtle because in France it's a big problem. You know, people uh, abandon red slider everywhere, but also tortoises like Herman tortoise, Greek tortoise. And we can discuss this later, but it's a big sanitary problem and also. It's also a big genetic problem for the wild population of Western Herman tortoises in the south of France. And uh, currently, I am working on a project for the conservation of the uh, Spanish pond turtle, Moremis leprosa. You know. Yeah. So that's what that's what I do right now, and uh, I was lucky enough to go in the field uh, here and there in France and to see. Uh, the free species that we have uh, in France in the wild. It is okay. It is three. I wanted to. I I thought that that was the case. I was thinking about it, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. So I want to. So it's good uh, to know. We don't count the ready slider as a wild turtle. <laughs> you better not. <laughs> Most amount. Uh, I just wanted to ask you. Um, yeah. Here in, here in Atlanta, we've been seeing red sliders also making a very slow um, encroachment on our yellow belly sliders. They've been hybridizing a lot here. So I just want to ask you, uh, what's the situation of red sliders like in France or Spain, perhaps? You know, think about like when you were younger and then compare that to now, like as they spread a lot, as they spread a little, like what can we do to stop them? So it's a big problem in France. And there are many, I know there is not many studies, but this problem is really well uh, understood by the authorities. You know, uh, all the governmental agencies dedicated to environment, they know that it is a problem, but they understood it a little bit too late. And um, I think it was maybe 10 years or 15 years ago, uh, the European Union, they made a law to stop the export of Trachemis elegans from Florida, 
So it was not uh, possible anymore to bring uh, radius slider in Europe legally from the US, from the big farm that were based in Florida at that time. But so many radius slider got released in France and literally everywhere you go in France, I think you can find radius slider in ponds, river, and also they breed. So that's the main thing. In the south of France, the temperature is warm enough to actually able uh, enable the the eggs to hatch so you find small baby radius slider everywhere and it might be a threat for the native species for different reasons the first one might be concurrence you know because if the radius slider go in the basking spot of the european pond turtle if they eat more food etc i i don't really have um a well-defined opinion on that, on the concurrence aspect, because I think there was not uh, enough study made on that. But of course, it's not uh, natural and it's not normal to have a non-native species in the wild. And it's a threat for other animals than turtle as well. The radius slider, they eat a lot of plants. They eat other things that might be a threat for biodiversity in general. Yeah. That's actually a... I was going to say that's that's pretty interesting because at least around where I live, like in a lots of areas of the Northeast, it tends to be a really spotty distribution because obviously they're not native up here either, but they've been introduced and it's, it's very concentrated around like urban centers. Like yeah. I only know a few spots in Delaware I can consistently find them. And then the, the rest of the habitats, they're just pretty remote. They're kind of in uh, out of the way places. And I, I've never seen them in most of the places I go. It's normally dominated by a, uh, Pudemi's rubber ventris, the red belly cooters or the painted turtles. But uh, occasionally I'll find hatchling sliders at places I've never seen them before. So they probably do have more of a distribution here than I, than I even could see. But. And the most annoying thing right now in France is that it's not only baby ready slider that we find. It's baby snapping turtle. It's baby Chinese uh, softshell turtle as well in the south of France. Of course, it's more rare than radius slider, but we do find them and there are some small population of snapping turtle that are establishing themselves in the wild, uh, in the south of France. So that might be a problem for different things. Yeah. It's, yeah, like uh, I heard you say something I, I might've misunderstood, but I, did you say that you weren't sure about some of the impacts that sliders being sympatric with native turtles, yeah. if it's negative mm -hmm. or not. I mean, that that's definitely refreshing to hear because I think there does tend to be sort of this just assumption that it's a negative interaction, you know, but we really to understand um, non-native species and their uh, impacts on the environment, we really have to take it on a case by case basis and use research as a foundation for that opinion. I think uh, there was an opinion piece that was written. I, I'm not sure uh, exactly, but it, it was kind of making you know invasive species biology a little maybe too political. But it was sort of saying that there's kind of this nativist biased uh, bias towards non-native species interactions. I'm not sure that it's. I don't know about taking it to, to a super political uh, extent. There, I'm not. I wasn't. I'm not so sure about that, but to some extent, there's a truth in that, that we shouldn't be 
it, just in terms of doing good science, we shouldn't be making assumptions that they're having negative impacts without really quantifying that. And I think it's it's definitely doable. I mean, I spent um, a year and a half looking at pond turtle interactions with, with sliders and still have a lot of questions about it, but it does seem there's some interactions there. Uh, but it, it's refreshing to hear someone kind of have that, you know, more based on kind of the facts of the matter rather than just the general assumption that a lot of people sort of, I think, make without any sort of basis that they're, they're having negative impacts. Um, there was a thesis though, someone did in for doing my Pontero research on non-native sliders in France. I don't know if you've come across that. Uh, in France, I know there was, there is a, a famous study that was made, I think in 2006, and uh, the the goal of the study was to show the impact of radio slider on small groups of uh, European pond turtle, but it was made in captivity. So uh, of course it, it's based, you know, it's not really reliable. And then I know there is another study and we talk about the concurrence, but there is, I think also another aspect that's very important. It's uh, parasites and disease that these captive turtle might bring in the wild population of turtles. And I know there is a study in France made by Olivier Vernot, and uh, it shown that the radio slider brought some kind of parasite. I don't know which one, I cannot remember. So it's also one of the threats within basic species as well. Going back yeah. to the Spanish pond turtles, um, could you maybe speak to like their distribution and like if they're at a greater risk of like the sliders and like the uh, European pond turtles or like what kind of habitat can you find them in? Or um, So in France, they are restricted to a very, very small area, which consists in one very small river in the Pyrenees. I don't know how you pronounce that in English, but it's a mountain channel, you know, in the southwest of France. And you can find them in some uh, ponds and um, and river also, but only in three departments, which is a county in France, we have them. And the global population in France is thought to be under 1,000 individuals. So it's nothing. And also every population is not connected, which is of course a big problem for the survival of the, of the species in France. But when you go on the other side of the border, they are very common in Spain. Uh, they thrive kind of in every pieces of water they can find in, the, in Spain. Uh, for the, for the subspecies uh, Moremis leprosa leprosa, because you know in Morocco there is also Moremis leprosa sarica, which is a different species. But yeah, in France, uh, actually Moremis leprosa uh, in France is the most endangered uh, reptile of the country. Yeah, that's that's pretty. That was interesting. I I was I was really curious about the Spanish pond turtle work you're doing as well. I think we all work as that's not one you hear about so much. I mean, I, I, I think Peter Pritchard had some in his. I'm sure he had some in his collection, but it's not something I, I can say I've ever heard of in captive situations in the U.S. No, I don't. Yeah, I but, don't. Yeah. But uh, the other thing that was kind of interesting is I know there that when you this the um, the Saharica 
Has there actually been an analysis in terms of the validity of that? I there was in the past. I remember there was. This was a long time ago, but they, there was a bunch of subspecies. It, it looked like the European pond turtle complex, and and these things had the weirdest names. I mean, this this was like I, I forget what they were, but there was one of them, and I was trying to. It, it was something super. It was like the European, like Fritz Jurgen Obsti. Like the European pond turtles, that's yeah, one yeah. of those. But this was for the Spanish pond turtle. It was a subspecies based yeah. on, I guess, nothing. And it was, I, I don't know what the name was exactly, but it was just kind of crazy. They get wild. I think it was in uh, 1996. Uh, uh, Mr. Schleicher, it's a German guy, I believe. He, he described uh, several subspecies of uh, Moremis leposa. But mostly in uh, in North um, in North Africa, and yes, I think there was something like seven subspecies, seven seven different subspecies. I'm not sure. I, I read the study a long time ago, so I cannot remember. But I don't think it was really based on uh, genetic work. I think it was more based on morphological comparisons, etc. But also the subspecies uh, Saharica, it was uh, described as uh, Moremis leprosa van Merigen by a French uh, biologist, Jérôme Marant. And then uh, it got uh, taken over by Saharica, I believe, because it was just a synonym. You know? I'm not uh, I, yeah, it didn't seem like there was much. And I mean, prior to really the past 10, 20 years, there hasn't been much, so you'd assume it's just based on sort of morphological work, which it certainly has its place, but I think sometimes um, scientists can get a little bit uh, generous with with um, how much difference they're sort of assigning to a taxon based on how it looks, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's that's pretty do you know what the the basis for the was it just the spotting patterns or what were the the head pattern the head striping or what were uh, the starica i mean the main difference is the blue eyes you know they have really clear blue eyes which is you really when you see them side by side you really see the difference and also they have um, yellowish orangish uh, spots on the shell that are much brighter than um, than the one in Europe. But uh, I'm not sure if there was genetic done on these, actually. You know? yeah. And you find also the Leprosa Leprosa, I believe they're also found uh, in North um, in North Africa. So Saharica is just a small population, uh, I think only in Morocco. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. That sounds about right. That's... Well, the work you're doing in France sounds pretty interesting in terms of only a thousand left in, and it's, it's nice to, it's good to hear the, the true pronunciation of, in, in, uh, the United States, I've heard people call it the Pyrenees. I, I think that that's a butchered pronunciation. I, it's, you said it's like Pyrenees or is that a little Pyrenees, Pyrenees, ouais. Okay, so you don't. So the S is silent, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that that's good to know. I, you know, I kind of I like to geek out on pronunciation and stuff like yeah, that because yeah. it's it's fun to just it it's sort of traveling and stuff. You learn right, things right. like that. Um, 
yeah, but that so you're doing some re, what kind of research are you doing with the the small population in in is it southwestern France? So myself, I'm not doing any research. You know, I was lucky enough to go in the field, etc. But we are uh, working on a conservation project with Jérôme Maron. There is a rescue center close to Toulouse, and the goal is to create a breeding program for them, and also to uh, foster research. So we have partners with um, a veterinary school, for instance, and also with governmental agencies. And we foster students to do their theses on uh, on the Moremis leprosa leprosa in France. And we learn a lot from them. They are monitoring uh, population. They are studying um, how much uh, the turtle can bear pollution. There's a lot of study on that uh, subject. So there is a lot going on right now. But the main goal uh, at the end of the conservation project we're doing is to create a small breeding center. And maybe in the future, if it's uh, necessary for the conservation of the species, then we will be able to release uh, offspring, hopefully. But also it's important to raise awareness about these species because there are not many people who actually know about it in France. Even though there is a governmental uh, conservation plan for the species, but right now it's more about um, aggregating knowledge about the species because we still don't know a lot about it, which is the case for so many turtle species. But in this case, we still don't know that much about the species in France. It's cool that you're doing work with us. I mean, I could definitely see in five, ten years when that's got some some headway on it, you guys could, you and uh, you said Jerome Moran yeah, could yeah. really be the champions for those turtles and kind of, and, and be known for that. I think some, a lot of the, you know, most notable names in the turtle world are known for a specific kind of species, but at the same rate are also pretty well versed in, in all turtle. It, it's a nice, you know, as a, a group of, of vertebrates, the 350 some odd species is about the perfect number because it's not snakes where you've got literally thousands and you could never really, you know, dapple in every aspect of snakes and, and lizards and everything. But turtles, you can really, I think, get an intimate sort of understanding of across the board, but also specialize in one area. It's kind of a nice aspect. Um, but the, yeah, Spanish pond turtles. I found it fascinating that uh, I in Peter Pritchard's encyclopedia, one thing that stood out to me about about what he wrote about him, which was pretty, you know, it, it wasn't too much information because late 1970s there was very essentially nothing at that point. But he said that the the Latin name Leprosa was because they tend to sit in uh, pretty nasty water. Uh, in, in like pools of, of cow pies and stuff like that. I, and it sounds like you're looking at the pollution aspect. Is there, are, are they really tolerant or do, do you have any ideas about what the... So to come back to the name uh, Leprosa, the story you said is the most common uh, spread story about the name. But actually it's not the real uh, reason why they're called like this. It's because, uh, so I think they were described in 1812, if I remember, by Schweger, you know. And uh, the holotype uh, the, that uh, helped from the description 
it had some small, I can't remember the name in English, it's some small dots on the um, scutes, on the vertebral scutes and on the shell, which looks like the button you get when you have um, the lepre. Uh, I don't know how you say lepre in English. Actually, did you understand it? Yeah. Yeah. So the the small um, the small there was small thing on the shell that looked like the the lepre button on human. That's why he gave this name. And then after, there are many people who said that it was because the turtle was in the mud, etc. So it looked like lepre as well. But yeah, so yeah, <laughs> sorry, I just wanted to say that because it's. I think it's really interesting to learn about it, and the, I, I really love um, to investigate the name of turtle, etc. So I just wanted to share that with you, and I don't even remember the question you asked me first. So if you don't mind repeating. No, I mean, I mean, you answered that. I, I, I always kind of just assumed. I, I'm the same way. I, I like to know kind of why things are named. You know, uh, mm. I just always assumed that's actually really interesting. So they, I guess, I don't know if it would be like Ken said, leprosy or just kind of. I, yeah. I, yeah. Translate. Le, I got okay. So yeah. that's kind of what it would. So that that's pretty interesting. Um, it's it's fun to to especially. It's interesting to know that. Uh, Peter Pritchard sort of maybe that wasn't even known at the time, right? Yeah. You know when when they figured that out that it was based on the holotype rather than the just it, it, their habits, I guess. Mm. Yeah, that, that was kind of I guess later on, probably after he wrote that. Um, well, that that's that's pretty interesting. Um, so that work. <laughs> Is gonna, that's going to be really cool, but that's sort of in its foundational uh, steps, I guess. And, and you're kind of at this point um, looking into, are, are you doing surveys sort of just to look at their tolerance and then thinking about doing a breeding project later down the line? So I know there was a few different scientific research that were done on the subject that indeed showed that they can live in pretty dirty water actually in sewer sanitary and, and very, very dirty water. And, um, and I know that there is uh, someone currently doing a thesis on that subject. So hopefully we will know more about that uh, sooner or later. And yeah, the conservation program is more that because in France, the population, you know, since they are not connected to each other, they are also very threatened. I know that right now there is uh, someone uh, doing a thesis on the pollution aspect, but previously there was also study that shown that uh, the Moremis leprosa can bear pretty high uh, polluted water and you can find them in sanitary sewer and very dirty, dirty water. But uh, it doesn't mean that they are not endangered and in France, the population are so small, and one of the main population also suffered from a big. Um, uh, I'm looking for the word in English, you know, when the water level just raised super high on the river. Yeah, 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 a flood. Actually, there was a big flood in the small river where they are, and a lot of them ended up uh, in. Uh, 
in the sea. So it could be if you if there was another flood, the population could be wiped out. So you know, it's still good to have conservation program and be able to actually have animals that were genetically uh, tested. So we know they are the one from France and we are able to have offspring whenever we want if it's needed for any conservation uh, program. That's, that is, that's cool work. I mean, there's certainly a niche there. Um, I think I'm curious too. So the uh, European pond turtles, are they, they are at least are syntopic, right? They kind of occur in the same area as Spanish pond turtles and, You've, you've worked with those, I think, pretty extensively, too. Um, mm -hmm. Have you noticed, do they have a different tolerance level to some of those pollutants? Or what have you noticed with them? Yeah, uh, this, I don't know. But for both species, the first thing you can uh, notice is that you can find them in pretty different uh, sorts of habitats. They live in rivers, they live in ponds, they live in lakes. And they adapt very easily to any kind of environment as uh, as soon as uh, they have all, all they need, you know. But the I don't know if there is any study right now on the pollution aspect for the emis. Maybe in California you have something going on on pollution and pond turtle. I'm not sure, but um, no, there was actually at the. The, the location I did my work, there was a group that came in and did some tissue analysis for, I think it was heavy metals and some other yeah. uh, toxins, but it, it was sort of a, it was more of a like preliminary biochemistry study, and I, I'm not sure there were too many implications. They just took a few samples from near me. Um, but no, I mean, I've not really come across anything. I'm not sure... There could certainly be something. It wasn't really within the realm of my research, um, but it's a good question. I just sort of based on my experience, I I I don't really know sort of what pond turtle, and it kind of depends. Pollution, sort of a broad term. Uh, they survive yeah. within the, the 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 stream I worked at, which is in the summer months, eighty percent urban runoff. It, it's essentially no natural flow, and you're getting large amounts of oil that are running off from, from sidewalks and uh, other pollutants and, and fertilizers. It's super, I mean, you'll see this, this thing in mid April, there will be a massive bloom in filamentous algae. Uh, and that's pretty testament to the high amount of, 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 of nitrogen that's getting pumped in there from mm. fertilizers and everything. So it's pretty polluted. Um, but they tend to deal with some of those chemicals and, um, that are in that particular stream, uh, they seem to deal with that at least to, to a certain extent. Now, when you look at the proportion of sliders in that stream, it's about four times higher observationally. Uh, so uh, are we seeing a reduction upon turtles over time? It's hard to say. I think that over time we'd have to really come back and look at it 5, 10, 15 years later and just see. But then at that point, it's just too late. It's kind of the bane of ecological work. How do you balance figuring out what's going on with how to protect it if it needs to happen. Now, it sounds like with your pond, Spanish pond turtles, that that's something it's 
it should be straightforward. I mean, you kind of know that you need to do what you can to protect them. But the European pond turtles I find just fascinating just because they're so similar in appearance and ecologically to our pond turtles. And um, that's that's they're just pretty – they're cool turtles. I think you've got the Italian ones, right, the Gallo Italica on the coast? Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, in the southwest and center of France, it's uh, the nominative species, so Orbicularis orbicularis. And then uh, you have a small population of Orbicularis orbicularis also in the northeast, close to the German border, in Alsace. And you have uh, Galwatalica in uh, in the south of France, southeast, and Corsica. Corsica used to be Landai, I think. Uh, when that thing with many subspecies of emis appeared, it was Lanzai, but now it's back to Galwatalika, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Um, that it, It's just such an interesting group of turtles, but it's definitely in a position where they're so expansive range-wise that trying to tackle that question, at least genetically, is just extremely challenging. It seems like there's going to be a lot of breakthroughs, and and when you look at like population genetic stuff like that, there's only so much inference you can make in terms of what constitutes sort yes. of a valid taxon and such. But I, I don't know, just naming them based on what do you think about kind of the current? You think there's anything that's sort of cryptic diversity in that that group that hasn't been elucidated yet, or? Well, I think genetic is very important for conservation for the reason that if you find a specific population that has evolved in what way, and if you understand, I mean, if you see that this population is very endangered, then you see that you have something to do. And that's the case for um, the subspecies that is in Turkey. I'm not sure about the pronunciation because there are so many different names, but I think it's Elzeisti. You can look at it, you'll find it. And that's the most endangered subspecies of uh, emis, I believe. Uh, so I think genetic is important to look at this difference and to create conservation programs that suits actually the, the need for the different taxons. But I am not enough good uh, in taxonomy, genetic and science to actually build a clear opinion of should these subspecies be maintained or is it yeah i, I have a shared opinion on that subject and even uh, regarding the genus for uh, you know the american pond turtle and the european pond turtle actinemis emis it's a difficult topic and it's hard to have a clear opinion because there are great uh, arguments on each side, I think. I don't know what, what do you think on this subject, uh, Michael, about the genus, Actinemis? I think at this point it kind of doesn't really matter. It doesn't really, uh, yeah. it doesn't really seem to denote much more. The, the whole basis behind Actinemis versus Emmys was whether or not the pond turtles, whether or not uh, European pond turtles were uh, sister to Blanding's turtles or not. And just based on the type of um, phylogenetic analysis you use for statistical inference, uh, it, it varied in one of the studies that was done. Uh, so the one author, the uh, Parham and Feldman, 
were a bit conservative. They wanted to use Emmys, uh, whereas a year before them, the uh, I think it was um, Fritz. Hol- yeah, Holman and Fritz. They were u- they they kind of just used uh, work that had been done based on um, some. 16s sequencing and some other some other mitochondrial work uh, that was done a few years before in the late 1990s, and they sort of reasoned uh, that if pond turtles were sort of their own, I guess you would call it a monophyletic divergence within a clade of European pond turtles, yeah. uh, Blanding's turtles, if they were sort of a separate split on that clade, uh, that they would be considered a, a monotypic genus. But it was sort of, it doesn't really explain much more than just calling them Emmys because all three of those uh, turtles are closely related evolutionarily in terms of in, in, to box turtles and bog turtles and wood turtles. They're all kind of their one group. So it was kind of, I think, a matter of personal preference. And a lot of people argued it was oversplit because there's no need really to go beyond their closest relatives in terms of genera, it just makes it more complicated. I I think my opinion on it is, I, I don't really I don't really mind either way. I think I'd use Emmys just because I feel like it's more informative in terms of when you say Emmys, we know that it's closely related to European pond turtles and Blanding's turtles. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if even if they are sort of their own uh, branch within that clade. And, and not sister to European pond turtles. If Blanding's turtles are, then I'm not sure it really makes much of a difference in terms of information. Um, but yeah, I guess my, my view would be that they're just Emmys and everything in that, that clade is Emmys. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've always wanted to see a European pond turtle considering that I've spent so much time with Western pond turtles. Uh, and it, I feel like essentially the rest of the world just wants to see Western pond turtles. Like I, I've got so many people that want to come see these things because they're so unique turtle-wise. I mean, it's just – I would argue that it's one of the most fascinating current situations that you've got a essentially an, 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 a turtle that is morphologically almost identical in certain circumstances and analogous ecologically – uh, occurring 6,000 miles across. I, I mean, that's, it's just incredible to me. And I've always wanted to, to there see is, them. There is not that many uh, other examples of like two different turtles that are on different continents, but which are so close. So yeah, it's very, I, I was lucky enough to see both. And morphologically, I mean, it's it, the, the difference are very tiny, you know, so. Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, that's actually so. I tell us some more about the Turtle Conservancy stuff uh, that you've been doing. Jack and I were down there in late October, and I I was back once since then helping with the collection there. But you got to do a crazy, I think, six month internship with them, and I mean, you literally got to go all over the place. Tell us a bit more about this. That yeah, so. Um, for my university program, I had to go one year abroad to do an internship or to be uh, in, a, in a university. And I decided to do an internship because I wanted to do turtle things. And uh, during one year, I worked for the Turtle Conservancy 
in Ohio, California. Uh, I mean, taking care of turtle and doing uh, many different things as well in the center, but also in New York. So I've worked at least uh, almost one year for the Turtle Conservancy. Okay, so it was a full year. Oh, wow. That's, I, yeah. I, I thought it was, that's, wow, that's incredible. And you were, so you got to go on a lot of trips. One of the, I guess, perks to doing work with them, right, is you got to go on a lot of different trips. Um, where, where did you go on, on some of those? Yes, yeah, so, uh, we went to Mexico. I think, yeah, we went to Mexico. I mean, abroad because in the US, I, I was also very lucky to visit different, different uh, nature places and also different people uh, who are interested in turtle. But I went to Mexico, and uh, we also went to Okinawa because uh, I have a strong interest for Geomida Japonica. That's uh, that's awesome. So we were all curious to what is your favorite species? I think we we might have just gotten the answer, but you can. It's so yeah. It's a very tough question <laughs> because I I mean I like all turtles. I I'm really fascinated by every species, even the most common one. Yeah, I mean, well, I would see a red slider in its native range. I would be fascinated as well, you know, so, uh, but yeah, Geomida is really a genius that I like, but I've always loved all the American turtle as well, you know, the spotted turtle, um, even bog turtle and all the Graptemis complex, but I like all turtle, I would say that there is one sort of turtle I don't like, but Geomida is my favorite because it's also the one that I keep at home with me. But otherwise, I really like the Testudo Hermani, you know, the Western Herman tortoise, because it's the first uh, species I saw in the wild. And uh, it's really, it's always a lot of emotion when you see one wild turtle in the wild, but uh, Western Herman tortoise, I really love to see them. And uh, even in captivity, uh, I really love these tortoises. They are so common in France and Europe. They, they embody really what people think uh, tortoise is, actually. If you ask anybody uh, in Europe, at least, not may, maybe not in the US, but if you ask uh, what a tortoise is, then people immediately think about Western Roman tortoises. As you're going on these, like, world turtle travels, are you getting reference photos for your uh, painting? Or, like, how do you go about, like, the sort of art process? Like, I know you've got an Instagram page, and it seems like you're a pretty talented uh, turtle artist. So if you could maybe, like, talk about the process or how you got started on that front, it would be pretty cool. Yeah, so <laughs> regarding pictures, I'm, I when I am on the field, I'm not very patient. I just want to see the animals, and I love to and I love to look at them. You know, to look for them, to search, etc., and understand their habitat and their behavior. And I'm not really patient. I'm not the person who's gonna sit uh, 30 minutes behind the camera to actually take a good picture. And most of my pictures are just turtle in my hands, taken with my iPhone, you know, which is which is uh, okay, but I could do more effort, I guess, on that point. But yes, uh, 
regarding painting, I've always uh, drawn a lot since I'm a kid, and I do a lot of uh, naturalistic illustration, mostly watercolor, of turtles that I like and turtles that I was lucky enough to observe uh, in nature or in captive collection. Are there any projects that you're like working on right now or any like species that you want to paint in the future? Yeah, so right now I'm painting a lot of uh, Spanish pond turtle because uh, it's part of the world conservation program we have. It's also about a lot about communication and uh, raising awareness. And we want to do uh, an exhibit because there is a very talented uh, photographer who takes a lot of pictures of these turtles. So I am also stacking a lot of uh, painting of this species for maybe future projects um, that could be used in a book or even a scientific article or whatever. So, yeah. Is is there anywhere, do you sell these or are these just kind of prints that you do? Well, I have a Etsy uh, shop, you know, where you can find some of them. I, it's not really, there are not all of them on it. But right now, I don't make many prints. If people ask, then I will do one, and uh, and uh, and then I can sell it. But right now, I don't really have the time to take care of printing everything, etc. So I just do them for fun, maybe for friends, and uh, yeah, that's it. Otherwise, I have a Facebook page and Instagram page also with uh, all my painting, air painting. We'll find a way to, it's her painting, right? We'll, we'll find a way to link that in show notes or something or put it on the screen. Yeah. I find that pretty interesting because, I mean, there seems to be like, like it just seems to be a very rare kind of combination. Like I, like my mom is an artist, but I was, I was never like, and I never really took off with it. I just find it interesting that you kind of have both the passion for the turtles and the ability to express that in a form of like painting mm -hmm. well also i've always been fascinated by natural history but like natural history as a combination of all the science that are gravitating uh, around the uh, natural form of life and uh, i was i've always been fascinated by uh, old uh, scientists and uh, they were drawing everything by hand because at that time there was no way to take pictures. So today I'm kind of regretting that we can take pictures because I think it was much more fun back then to actually, when people were describing species, they had to make the drawing, etc. It was a very funny process, I think. Yeah, that's actually... That's a good point because and the drawings were like they were immaculate back then too like there was no other choice they had to learn how to do that so that's something today that's not really a required skill but it's interesting that that was yeah it was so prevalent back then uh, many 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 scientists back then i mean in the 18th for 19th century they were it was kind of mandatory to be good at drawing because, yeah, that was part of the job. There was no picture, and when they were uh, opening an animal and they had to describe the organ, the screws, the bones, etc., they had to grow. So it's kind of fascinating that at that time there was people with so much talent, like being very good at science, etc., and 
and being able to draw everything. And now we have, I collect all books and all turtle uh, art. So it's also a source of inspiration for what I draw. You know. Certain uh, certain people just have, and you're definitely one of them that have this ability to capture sort of all the details of an animal. I I've I've tried art in the past, and I was never I was never really that skilled at that. So it's just fascinating to see someone, and it I actually enjoy sort of watching the process of someone paint something because you really see sort of all the little details they pick up on. And I think that really kind of encompasses the, the perfect definition of a naturalist in terms of, uh, you really can notice all of these things and, and put it down to paper like that. It's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, I came across one of your paintings actually, when I was interning at turtle conservancy, it was, uh, it, it was, I forgot. I think it was, a cicalia maybe I, I can't remember what it was but it was sitting on the closet when i opened it up to put my clothes away and i see this and i, I didn't know what it was at first because i wasn't even aware that you did painting and then i brought it to max and he told me that this is yours and i think we shipped it back to you so that was uh that was my first introduction i i was amazed i mean i was like wow <laughs> this is pretty incredible i but uh yeah and, but those ones they are not that precise and i see that the one you are referring about it's uh there is bdi and quadriocellata i think on the same sheet and but for the past few years and also because of corona so we spent a lot we had to spend a lot of time at home in france and we could not get out it was mandatory to stay at home so i made also a lot of progress and i had more time to actually look into details and paint very small details so but when i paint one turtle indeed i try to model it as close as possible to what it looks on the picture that i have or or what it looks uh, uh, for real so, yeah that's that brings up an interesting question how did i know france for, for whatever reason, I was hearing a lot about France sort in the news in early 2020 and COVID response and everything. How did that affect, I know we're sort of, well, you know, I'm not going to, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow at this point. It's 2022 is kind of just like, I, 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 I'm sort of just doing my business and, and just adapting or whatever. But in the beginning of 2020, I heard a lot about France and it seemed like you guys were really kind of on, on lockdown. In the U.S., I think we lasted maybe two months, and then stuff kind of just went back to uh, kind of, I don't know. It's been crazy, but I think that maybe we were less stringent about lockdown. How do you think that that affected uh, conservation in France? And I, I guess... Um, mm, that's a good question, but I think people were doing like, uh, real conservation uh, for non-profit or governmental agencies or governmental services. It was part of their job, so they were able to go out. But for at least two or three months, uh, everybody had to be at home and, uh, and all the shops were closed and everything was closed, So, which was good for nature in some way. But... Yeah, I'm not sure if it really affected uh, any conservation program. Maybe because people were not able to 
progress in their work and also because it was more difficult to find uh, money and funds for conservation program and studies. Otherwise, I'm not sure if it really affected uh, anything. Yeah. yeah, you were probably lucky than luckier than most countries in terms of uh, a lot of these countries that are more based on like ecotourism and such. I think we're hit pretty hard, but France yeah. obviously is a major uh, world leader, so it's kind of uh, that that probably wouldn't be so much. But yeah, you never know what kind of research and. But it sounds like a lot of people. I mean, it sounds like you sort of took it as a positive and figured out and and worked on your art more. So that's I mean that's cool to hear that. Uh, at least it was bearable. You know, a lot of people went downhill mentally. Um, but uh, yeah, I. For one, when I was doing my pond turtle things, I went out in April and like everyone I feel like in April was kind of under this mindset that the world's just going to, we're going to go back another hundred years and we're going to start over or whatever. Not, not, that's not really what I thought, but that's a little bit hyperbolic, but we all thought it was going to be, oh, it's perfect year for the environment or whatever. But I think, I thought the, the, the stream where the pond turtles was at cleared up. And, and it looked real nice. And then I found out later in July that that was kind of just, I guess, natural variation because it looked exactly the same as it normally does. So we got a little, a few months of a respite, but I think people should know that we're pretty much back to where, where we were yeah. at this point. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's some cool stuff that you're doing with the painting. And, and it really captures, I think, what, what it is to be a naturalist in terms of, um, so yeah, I guess I, I'm curious. You mentioned earlier the Herman's tortoises uh, and some genetic pollution there, and 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 you've posted about fires, yeah. kind of affecting them, and they're only sort of in that small like southeastern portion, I guess, of the mm -hmm. country. Yeah. Can you can yeah. you talk a little more about those? I'm curious to hear yeah. about that. So in France, you have two population. Uh, one in uh, Var the. Department of Var, which is a, it's the equivalent of a county in France, we call it a department. And it's in the southeast of France in a very touristic region because it's close to the Mediterranean Sea. There is a lot of tourism and also there are many, many people who live there. There is high demography. And the other population is in Corsica, uh, which is less threatened because there is still more space and more natural area. But the population uh, that is in VAR is highly endangered, first because of uh, habitat loss and fragmentation, of course. Uh, urban development uh, has been a big problem for many years, as well as the wine business, because, you know, they grow a lot of grapes in that region for the wine, uh, for wine business. So they destroy a lot of habitats. Uh, and fire also has been a big problem, even though in every Mediterranean um, ecosystem, fire is something natural, but the problem is how frequent the fire are, because the tortoises, they, are, they take so much time to recreate their population and to reach a high demographic level that are that are livable for the population. So last year, unfortunately, there was a big fire uh, which destroyed like 
pretty much everything of the reserve because there is a small reserve there as well. And uh, many turtles died, unfortunately. I went there and there was survey to actually count uh, the dead turtles and find uh, the one who survived and rescue them. And basically, I don't think they've published the result yet. But basically, uh, one turtles on two. So uh, approximately 50% of the tortoise we found were dead. So it's, it really affects them, yeah. The ones that uh, survived, how, how do they survive? Do they like pull the burrows or do they hide somewhere? How do they well, I think it's, it's a great question because uh, I've always been um, very impressed by the how resilient the tortoise and turtle are. It's crazy what the turtle and the tortoise can survive and can, because they get, they bury themselves um, under big boulders that are close to the forest and the fire basically came through and the tortoise survived, you know. If you would be there as a human, you would be just dead, burnt, or because you breathe the, the smoke. But they survive, and then they will not eat for many months. <laughs> Even they will bury themselves and directly hibernate. So it was, um, I think it was in July, the fire. And uh, we were lucky because there was a lot of rain after that. And then nature would grow, and there was food for the tortoise. But the one who survived, um, yeah, they were just buried, you know? and the fire just came across where they were, and they survived. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, lots of like adults with, with fire scarring or anything on them, because uh, like down like in the south in the southeast here, uh, you'll see that on Gulf Coast box turtles, and uh, and then then the gophers too. But they at least will retreat into the burrows if they have the opportunity. But you still find lots of them. Forged carapaces. Yeah, you find, you find burnt one. And uh, also, it's interesting to, when you look at them, you find a lot of them that have scars from a dog bite. And also, because they get hurt by uh, people who love the mold. And so, that's a big problem. Or they also get crushed by car. Road kills also a big problem. But there is this place uh, close to their habitat, the village des tortues. It's a, it's a rescue center. And uh, when there's a herb tortoise, people might bring it. And they have a veterinary staff to actually take care of the, of the tortoise. And eventually, they are able to reduce uh, some rescue tortoise every year. So it's great. That's really... And those fires are those fires natural or were those uh, human mediated? I was no, no, no. that fire. I think uh, it started close to um, an highway, and uh, it's a cigarette. So every time it's uh, it's human based. Most of the time it's human based. Yeah. People don't realize what kind of impacts uh, cigarettes have. Uh, I it just in general. I mean, that kind of thing, obviously, is tragic. Um, but there's also some research that I, I someone that was in a program I, I worked with did research on cigarette and pollutants that are released when you drop them in the street and such. 
and he quantified this, and it was just incredible to look at. I, I don't remember the specifics, but the amount of of pollutants and and carcinogens that were being released into the environment was, I mean, just vast quantities from all the the totality of cigarettes that get dropped off in it uh, every year, and it washes off into to lakes and rivers and. Um, you really wonder how that's being kind of biosynthesized and how that's recirculating. Um, I think, you know, people don't realize our, our environment is kind of, that's a reason we're here. Uh, it's important to realize that. And, uh, the turtles are sort of a metric, you know, of, of how well the ecosystem's functioning. And that in turn is kind of, uh, that's, that should be kind of how we measure how we're doing, um, and so when, when we're having those big issues with fires and such, it's not a really promising outlook. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting. I, 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 I seem to recall that, that the tortoises and var in France are pretty distinct. Uh, they're their own kind of genetic cluster as well. So they're somewhat diverged, I guess. Uh, but that, that's kind of interesting that you work with that specific population. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's... It, terrible to hear about the fires but it's great that someone and you and a lot of other people it sounds like are involved with these 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 surveys um yeah i mean i guess um we can start to kind of uh wrap up but we've got a few more questions and then we also play a game at the end too so you're welcome to participate if you'd like i'll explain we can explain that in a sec but just i guess to to wrap it up uh, unless anyone else has questions or anything, I'm curious uh, what your future plans are. It sounds like that that Spanish pond turtle work is going to be interesting, but any other uh, plans for the future or um, kind of what are your next turtle uh, activities or trips? Yeah, so right now it's uh, I'm really helping uh, for the conservation program and trying to establish uh, for the pond turtle. And uh, hopefully they will start the building in the spring. So there's still a lot of work coming in. There will be also a congress, with different communication, lecture, etc., and workshop on the conservation of the species. So there's a lot to prepare. Uh, otherwise, uh, I would like uh, still to do some research on Geomida. I would like to go back to Okinawa if it's possible one day. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll be able to travel normally uh, as soon as possible. And also, I would like to go to Vietnam or China to study uh, Spangarai in the wild. Yeah. Right now, that's my main plan. But of course, I would like to go back to the US and, and hang out you know, with uh, different friends that I have there. But uh, yeah, China, Jomaida, and uh, for now, that's what I would like to do in the short term. Yeah. You, uh, well, you're always welcome back. And uh, if you're around in California, I'm more than happy to take you out and we'll find pond turtles. Just don't come in December. I've had some people that they're saying, well, I can only get off in December and November. And I say, well, you might as well just not come. We're not going to see anything. <laughs> um, yeah. But I can also find you sea turtles now, too. There's an area where they congregate in a river near me. Yeah, you, I think you, you, we were talking about that. I, Jack was here a week before I discovered this interesting phenomenon. But uh, now when he's back and when everyone's back, we'll go find him. Um, so, yeah. 
I was just going to ask, when was the last time, have you been up to, I saw pictures of Instagram where you were up uh, in Jersey. It looked like the same creek I went to with Maurice to look for uh, bat turtles. And uh, when was the last time you were there? Like, uh, in spring 2019. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And yes, it's creek yeah, it was right pretty close to his house, but that was a uh, yeah, that was a really fun experience. Yeah, we all made a trip. Jack got to do the map turtles, but then we made a trip in late November to look for unsuccessfully look for bog turtles. But we did find we had a wood turtle whisperer with us that pulled out six. Yeah, that was impressive. Like two hours, so it was pretty cool. It was just um, one hour. Yeah, that was – I don't know how he did that. I mean, it was like – Caleb, this kid from Massachusetts, was just finding them left and right. I think he found five of six, right? All of them. I... One, one of them was a pair, too, so I think he might have found yeah, all of them. I, I think – I heard Nathaniel found mating bog turtles within yeah. 15 yeah. minutes. We found mating wood turtles within 15 minutes, so – it was still pretty cool. I I I had never. Se- I don't think any oh. of us had ever seen them. So no, we haven't. He found the two bob turtle mating, and uh, I was maybe ten meters away from him, and I found the wood turtle that was alone, but still they were like ten meters from each other, which is kind of. Oh, so so Nathaniel found two bog turtles, man. I I heard he just walked up and like almost. Hit him with the shoe or something. Yeah. And then you found a wood turtle yeah. 10 meters away from that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly at the same moment. I can't even Best imagine. Really. We would have been freaking out. We were... Those vernal... Or I guess the, the bogs and the, the fens there are just fascinating. I, I didn't even expect how beautiful in that one area when you go back there and the streams run through it. I mean, it's it's really hard to explain. It's, it's like a pond... But then the, the grass tussocks kind of, and you can walk through it, you know, it's... it's yeah, I think it's a very good example of typical bog habitat, but that place is, like, pristine, it's very well preserved, and, yeah. That's the impressive part. Like, there's technically two populations of bog, of bog turtles in my state, and Delaware is really small, like, this. 90 miles like across and uh but both populations are on the other side of the state and like protected so i've never never even been to them and, uh, i don't live very far from where we went last uh spring to, to look for them and uh habitat was not as nothing i've ever really seen like i'm normally used to seeing much more altered or polluted habitats than that i guess it was just like the, the right was it was still pristine for bog turtle habitats around here. We did, um, the night before we went out to about midnight and we're walking in kind of some sketchy parts of the woods, but uh, we were also in sort of a, I guess, a sort of a bog out there and we came across, well, this was actually in a river. We came across a snapping turtle, common snapping turtle, um, one of the guys pulled it out and it was super emaciated and, and, and really underweight, but it was about maybe what, 30, 30, 35 degrees out. Close. And the snapper was, I guess, sitting in the shallows at like 11 o'clock at night. 
and we walked up and one of the guys with us found it. It was that was kind of interesting, but yeah, it was kind of an interesting. But um, so I don't know if you're short on time, Simone. No, no, no. Okay, but so we do as long as everyone is good on questions. Uh, I think that I'm, I'm certainly good. I mean, we could talk for hours. I just don't want to. Uh, take it too long because i feel like at a certain point people just kind of go to the next but uh uh so we do a little game here uh this one it's kind of an interesting idea um and you are welcome to participate if you want um but so what we do is um, i do a random name generator we pull this up we put everyone's name in it and we spin it once and if you get picked the first time, you've got two minutes to come up with five questions about turtles. And so you got to come up with five questions about turtles. And then we spin it again. And the second name has two minutes. Well, they have to just wait, I guess. And then the second name picked has to answer those five questions. And if you get three out of five, you're safe. And if you get less than that, then one of us has to open up the next episode with something that the other person that stumped them with the questions gets to dictate what they have to do. Something kind of silly at the beginning of the next episode. So you're welcome to participate or just be someone who asks questions or if you want to receive, I'll put you in the generator if you want. Don't feel pressured. I don't want to, but I think that you would certainly be fine with this considering your knowledge of turtles so uh i i guess i'll pull this up and everyone gets serious when this goes on because we can't sacrifice our credibility is uh, at stake here yeah well in our first episode that is no longer in existence uh i picked the questions just and jason answered and jason got three out of five so he was safe i was kind of disappointed there does that mean that I don't have to have my uh, name on the like wheel or whatever this go around or? I mean, we. That's actually I don't know. I think... that could be how you do it because like, if somebody like wins it, then they don't have to participate the next time. I guess. Seems fair. I'll spectate. All right, so that's what you want. Your I guess you get the prize. You get the prize this time. So yeah, I guess that's fair. So if you if you get the three out of five, you get to pick what someone does, and then I guess. You can either make someone do something or you can opt out the next time. Sure. That's fine. Um, I'm going to pull this up really quick. Yeah, we still got the old. This doesn't count, by the way. I got to go back through this. Okay, so I'll, I'll just do it like this. Well, I, there's no reason for me to delete all those names. I guess, yeah, Ken. And then Simone, so you, you're down? Yeah, yeah. All right, so he's in. So this is the first click. Whoever gets this gets to pick the questions. And the goal here is to make them as hard as possible. Oh, oh man. There he goes. Okay, well. One or question for you. So you get to pick five questions okay and you've got okay. approximately two minutes to come up with good questions since you're our guest we'll give you more time to find five questions okay 
I know that can be kind of. I'm gonna write them, and uh, I tell you when I'm good. But I have few ideas. That sounds good. Alrighty, all right. Uh, let's figure out the second person who's gonna be receiving them. Well, that's not gonna work. Uh, we'll go one more time here. You could also like remove his name from the thing so that way. Like, yeah. Good point, Jason. Good point. Um, I, I, we got it now. Uh oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Oh man. Oh man. All right, I'm ready. Okay, so we got a showdown between Simone and Jack Thompson. Let's see. This this is gonna be Simone. Simone's looking. Uh, yeah, pretty, uh, I have two questions. Actually, I I don't think I will find five, but if you want, we can go. I have two questions that I think uh, interesting. The first one is uh, how often we should feed a turtle in a week, in a month, or whatever, which is, I think, a very interesting debate about how much energy a turtle, or more generally a reptile, actually needs to to live. Because in captivity, I think in captivity we overfeed a lot, all the turtles. I mean, that's my personal opinion. And it's a very hard question to answer. To actually know how often and uh, if the food we provide to the animal uh, is really good for them. Because if they breed, to me, having successful reproduction of a turtle at home, it's not necessarily uh, proving that you are responding to all their needs and all their uh, Physiological or biological need. Yeah. So, how often should we feed a turtle? I think is a great question. You can pick whatever species you want, even Redis Liber, you know. In a week. So, one, two, yeah. I was going to say, I definitely think turtles are overfed in captivity because I tend not to feed mine much very, very frequently. Like, it's sometimes, it really depends because I. Uh, I have sulcatas. I also have a single rhinoclemmies, a polkimera, and I also have a I have a Russian tortoise. I have a few other, and uh, most of them are inside right now because it's so cold out. And when they're inside, they're not as active. I'll feed them like a couple days, every couple days, days or a week, and they put a mount. It's varied too. I tend to like don't use tortoise food or those supplements very much. I tend to stick towards more natural, it's like uh, fruits and vegetables. And uh, occasional protein, and uh, but during the summer, the sulcatas live outside, and so does the Russian tortoise, and they're grazing on the whatever vegetation is available, and that's honestly most of what they eat. Like uh, the sulcatas, because a lot of people will just feed their uh, tortoise like really sugary every day, and they start to develop problems, and that's not the kind of diet they'd have in the wild. I think that's the biggest indicator of. When you have a captive turtle, you should have an understanding of how they feed in the wild, how frequently they do, and what they're feeding on, and then to replicate that to an extent in captivity. At least, yeah. Well, the thing is that we don't really know how often they eat in the wild. We're finding so many species we don't even know what they eat. 
And and my second question was also related to the first one, and uh, it was what is actually eating, for instance, the corn turtle. And of course, there is more and more study on that subject. And uh, I'm thinking about this question because in Switzerland there was a study made on uh, on emisorbitulite, and we've always thought that you know they were mostly carnivorous. They were eating proteins. And, but in fact, they eat a lot of seeds, they eat a lot of uh, greens, a lot of algae. And I feel like there is a lot to learn about uh, all these aspects. Was uh, the question general question or I missed the first part of it, my audio got yeah, what, what is eating uh, an American contractor? I think this one is more for Michael, but I guess you will have pretty much the same answer. Than for the European bunker. Yeah, um, it's pretty varied. Huh? Go like ahead. Diet, I would like. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what's the diet? You know. Oh well, it's it's not particularly specialized. I mean, that's honestly how a lot of these uh, like amidine turtles are. They're not. Them aren't very specialized, and the ones that are, like like map turtles, are pretty specialized for uh, feeding on tough shoulders. But I mean, pond turtles retain the kind of slider-like ecology in terms of diet, at least. They they're not particularly specialized. They can feed on single source of food if it's widely available, uh, whether that be protein or uh, like animal matter, or if it's vegetation. They're pretty flexible. And that actually applies, that seems to apply to most turtles. At, like at the end of the day, the ability to survive on a varied diet or on multiple different things. And that seems to be something that's aided them uh, throughout their culinary history. That they always fall back on other means. And even highly specialized turtles, they can still deviate from their diet pretty uh, dramatically and still succeed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is really an interesting topic regarding that. I feel like there is a lot about it. I guess that means this has been for Jack, right? So, uh... I think so. I think that he reasoned to those answers fine. How do you feel, Simone? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. I passed your test. He's safe. He's safe. Um, well, it's been awesome to talk uh thanks so much for coming on um there's so much more that we could talk about honestly this is going to be the issue with all the guests is we're going to be able to go on for hours but we gotta stop at some point um yeah i mean i guess i do, i'm good on questions if everyone else is i think yeah uh, Simone, it's, coming on. it's been it's been awesome to have you on and Super thankful you could do it so last minute, considering uh, we were lined up. We were trying to get Maurice on this week, but he's traveling this week, and we'll probably do that in a few weeks, and then hopefully start cranking out more episodes with more people. But uh, at some point, this should be available on Apple Podcasts, essentially any podcast network, and then we'll probably start putting it on YouTube too. So uh, at some point, not... We want to have a few episodes done before then, but at hopefully at some point in the future. Um, yeah, no, it's been awesome having you on. Uh, thanks so much for for talking to us. Uh, 
uh, turtles in France was definitely something different. You don't hear about that every day. Uh, and your work with your work with the Spanish pond turtles, I wasn't even aware of that. It's awesome, and I think that in a few years you're going to be a champion for that species and recognized for that. So uh, that's that's awesome that we could talk to you kind of in the beginning stages of that project. Um, all right, I guess. Uh, yeah, Simone. Uh, I don't think we've uh, I don't think we've met before. Yes, yeah. yeah, this is our first time seeing each other. So. Yeah. Uh, we're really glad to have somebody like you know, international. I think most of our viewers are probably going to be American, so this is a great learning experience for you know international species. I learned a lot, so I hope your uh, the Hermans tortoises they recover well and uh, good luck with your paintings. I'm just glad we're uh, going to photography now because my paintings would suck. <laughs> what? <Well, yes. laughs> I'm in the same boat. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I'm really glad you were able to come on. And I don't think I'd ever really spoken to you before this. So that was a great opportunity. I learned a lot. And uh, it definitely kind of opened up the waters to more international uh, people. So that was great. Yeah, definitely like a good way to get the information out to the public. I mean, I guess for like most of us, it's our first time hearing about hearing about like your work, you know, ourselves. So, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing and answering all our questions. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, and Michael, I recognize this poster you have behind you for the Galapagos tortoises. He's got it framed. I, mine's pretty weak. I just I just tacked it up. This is one of the last ones that that Pritchard handed out himself. He gave me that, and uh, I have two copies originally from him. And this, I framed this one. I actually have a whole roll of them. I have about fifty because last time we were there, we were packing up the institute, and he had a stack of them about this thick under one of the beds. So we just we were allowed to take them. So I have a roll of them, but this was one of the original ones. I got it in February 2019, and uh, it, it's like 150 dollars to frame that whole thing. It's it's. It's like the centerpiece of my room. Like, I have a friend who have it with the autograph actually of Peter Pritchard. That's cool. I really like that poster. It's a really good one. It's like a one of a kind. Too. There's nothing, not much else out there that really displays the different uh, like types of Galapagos tortoises and really shows their unique morphology. Yeah, it's certainly a unique poster. Um, yeah, but well, I guess the last thing I have to say is I might, I, I might in the next few years, uh, be in your neck of the woods. Um, uh, I'm very close at this point to getting a pretty substantial stipend. Hopefully I I'm still not a hundred percent certain there, uh, but to go and get some international travel in college. So if I get that, I, I, Europe is somewhere I definitely want to come visit. So, um, if I'm around, I'll let you know, and hopefully we can go out and look for stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was great to, to talk to you in person again. Uh, hopefully we'll cross paths at a TSA or something in the future. Um, all right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.